Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. What strange weather we've been having this week, Phoebe. Isn't it ridiculous? It was boiling hot earlier and I thought, oh, I'll take Duke for a walk. So we went out for a nice walk. On the way back, got snow done. Snow. Snow. <laughs> the beginning really? of the walk, it was boiling hot. You know? <laughs> It was quite a lot of snow, so it was ridiculous. Uh, hasn't snowed here in the Midlands, but it is a lot of... Well, I'll say that. It, it was like hail and sleet, I suppose. It came down really heavily. And, That's uh, what I thought it was to start with, and then realised, no, it was actually snow. Like, <laughs> Duke is a big black dog, and he was just covered in like white flecks of snow. <laughs> what is this? Ridiculous. Uh, that's crazy. We had all that lovely, still, dry, sunny weather. Yeah. June, April. Yes. And we just about managed to have some nice weather for our little get together on Sunday, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And then Monday, it was just ridiculous. It was the weather. horrendous. We had a gazebo yeah. up. That gazebo did not last very long. No, they don't tend to. <laughs> no. So how's your week been? Um, uh, all right. It's been slightly shorter than usual because we had the bank holiday on Monday. In the yes. ridiculous weather. Um, other than that, just pretty full on at work. Had a drama group committee meeting. That's very exciting. <laughs> on Tuesday. Nice, while nice. we prepare for our entry into the All England Theatre Festival. Exciting. If we get but... to the English final, it's actually in Bridlington. Oh, really? Yeah. That's convenient. <laughs> I know where you can stay. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, 7th of August. There you go. I'll check my diary. Yeah. <laughs> 3rd of July will be Leicester. So that's like the Midlands final, I suppose. The Midlands, yeah, the Midlands final would be at Leicester on the 3rd of July. Yeah. And we're doing the Worcestershire nice. heat the week before that. So it's like the 26th of June. Yeah. I mean, regardless, we could go and watch it at Bridlington. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Other than that, yes, just catching up on true crime as far as I can. <laughs> yes, yes. We started watching the Netflix documentary last night, Sons of Sam, um, okay. which I think is new. I thought I'd read something that had been trailed and it's come out. So we started watching it about the idea that basically David Berkowitz, who I talked about last week, wasn't on his own and that he was kind of part of a bigger cult um, oh, right. committing the um, murders that Son of Sam was famous for. So it was very interesting. Okay. And I've started reading a book that you very kindly gave me. As have I. I've also started reading the same book. I thought, as we both enjoyed Unnatural Courses, which I finally finished, oh, yeah. um, we could read another book about murder and death together. So, <laughs> <laughs> The Biography of Murder. Yes, and I think it literally came out last week. A Biography of Murder by Kate Morgan. It's It's really interesting. I've only just started it, but it's an interesting delve into the the history of the crime of murder mm. and how it became legislated against. Yes, I've only really read the introduction bit of it, but so true, like just as a species, we are fascinated by death and murder and we always have been. And the fact that it was in songs and books yeah. and now it's in documentaries and podcasts and that's where we get our, our murder hit from. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's just taken a different uh, form now, from folk songs to channels on TV and podcasts. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, tonight, um, I have a story which kind of interlinks a little bit with the um, story we touched on last week, the Angel of Lance. Um, And tonight, I'm going to be telling you about John Bodkin Adams, who I hadn't heard of. (laughs) Um, And turns out he's quite a big deal. Have you heard of him? I haven't. John Bodkin Adams. That sounds like an English name. Or mm. British name. Well, actually, um, he was born in Randallstown in County Antrim in oh. Ireland uh, on the 21st of January, ni- 1899. So I got that all wrong then. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the eldest of two sons. He was born to Samuel and Ellen Bodkin, and they were a deeply religious family and part of the Plymouth Brethren, which was oh. an austere Protestant sect. As was John Haig, the acid bath murderer that we covered a few weeks ago. Yes, you're right. He was the one who um, they used to read Bible stories for fun. That's all they were allowed to do, yeah. And his yeah. dad built a fence around the around the garden and the house to keep yes. the bad public out. I'd forgotten about that, yes. Um, well, I think whilst they were quite strict, I don't think they were quite as strict as that. <laughs> um, quite so Puritan. Quite so Puritan, but um, it was a, a religious sect, really, that John remained part of for all of his life. Apparently, a lot of churches kind of build a network and support each other around the countries, and that was quite instrumental, really, for John at the beginning of his career. So his his dad, Samuel, was a preacher in the local congregation, and he was also a professional watchmaker with a keen interest in cars, um, which he passed on to his son, John. John was a big fan of cars. Sadly, Samuel died of a stroke in 1914, and then he was followed in 1918 by John's brother, William, who actually died of the Spanish flu. The last pandemic oh. that we all um, endured, well, we didn't, but uh, as humankind, we endured when he was only 14. John started university at the University of Belfast in 1916 at the age of 17. Um, and he was excused from the First World War because he was trained to be a doctor. Uh, he wasn't a great student. He was seen as a plodder and a bit of a lone wolf by his lecturers. And he also missed a year of school. Um, no one's entirely sure why, but we think it's possibly because of either his brother's death or because he'd had Spanish flu himself or more likely that he had tuberculosis. Um, oh, okay. And he had to, obviously had to recover from that. So he, he missed a year, went back again. So in 1921, he graduated from university, but without honours. So not great grades, but he still graduated. Um, and he was offered a position as an assistant houseman at Bristol Royal Infirmary by one of his uh, dad's old Plymouth Brethren contacts, okay. um, Arthur Rendell Short. But um, it became clear to Dr. Short very quickly that um, Adams wasn't a very good doctor. Um, so Short found him a job somewhere else <laughs> so that he didn't have to work with him anymore and he could get rid of him. So John applied for and got a job as a GP in a Christian practice in Eastbourne. And it was there that he spent the rest of his life. He moved there in 1922. And not long after, he moved in his mum and his cousin, Sarah, who were his only remaining relatives. He moved them over to live with him there in Eastbourne. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) 
So Eastbourne um, is still known quite commonly, I think, as a place where people go to retire. And that was absolutely the case in 1922 as well. It was very much a place where older people, generally wealthier people, would go to retire. Obviously, Eastbourne was full of, of older people and they were all now regular visitors of their new, very friendly Irish GP. Uh, okay. He was popular. People liked him. And things were going well for John in his new life in Sussex. He was quite a greedy man. Um, If you see photos of him, you'll see that literally he was quite a greedy man. Um, But financially, he was quite a greedy man as well. He tried very hard to get in with some rich clients, which actually wasn't that difficult in Eastbourne because there was quite a lot of wealth around there. Sure, okay. Um, A certain patient who was a William Moorhood was one of the first people um, that he kind of got his grips into and was quite greedy with to the point where he would go to shops that the Moorhoods frequented and buy things to just put them on their account so like if you saw clothes and stuff that he liked and he said to him oh where where did you get that from he would tell him where it came from and he'd go to that shop and buy it but just put it on his account (laughs) and they were so rich I don't think they really noticed he would also just invite himself with his mom and his sister to go around to their house for dinner like just turn up at their doorstep and be like hey what you cooking (laughs) Um, a bit weird Um, and he also borrowed two thousand pounds from him which is the equivalent of about one hundred and ten thousand pounds today and he bought an 18 room house um in the (laughs) trinity trees area of town that means nothing to me but apparently it's a very select address um and if you see photos of it it's a beautiful house like a kind of big old victorian villa style thing um and he lived there for the rest of his life so that worked out well for him right okay Uh, later on william marwood's wife called him a real scrounger and after mr moore had died in 1949 um apparently dr adams visited his widow to you know pay his um respects and he took a 22 carat gold pen off the dresser as something to remind him of her husband and never saw her again (laughs) so yeah strange man he became somewhat well known in some circles for recommending treatments that weren't necessarily needed um but would earn him quite a lot of money to fund this lifestyle that he was becoming very accustomed to including buying these very nice cars that he liked yeah. um and having a chauffeur and obviously at this time there was no nhs so um people paid for their medical treatment generally if they weren't in some sort of kind of if they didn't have national insurance um and in this yeah. sort of area and he very much enjoyed this lifestyle that came with being a rich gp in this very nice place <laughs> i'm sure um, he did yes. and <laughs> he needed to carry on funding his way of life so sometime in the 1930s after he'd been in sussex for a few years he started saying to his patients so instead of me sending you a bill because i'll have to pay tax on it how about you leave me the cost of your treatment and any subsequent bills in your will. And then when you die, I'll have it as a bequest. So it'll be tax free, which, you know, sounds quite business savvy, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And it would, might take a lot of forward planning. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1933, he became engaged to a girl called Nora O'Hara. Sounds like a good good Irish girl (laughs) Um, but it was called off in 1935 after her father had bought them a house and furnished it Um, so I don't know if this was a different house and then he didn't live in it I don't think Um, I'm not sure but 
various explanations have been suggested. Some suggest it's because his mom didn't agree with the marriage and her kind of status. There's another rumour that maybe he wanted her father to change his will so that he would inherit from it and he wouldn't. And there was another rumour going around at this sort of point and also much later on that he was actually gay, which was obviously still illegal until 1967. So that couldn't have been proven at the time. But there's some some discussion that actually that's why they didn't follow through with their engagement. Okay. So, so Pedro, I, I was going to say, I guess that is the house in Trinity Trees, the one that he bought with the money he borrowed. Was that where his mother and sister still lived? Yep. So they still lived there. Right. Um, so I guess. So maybe the other house was for him and his and his wife intended, yeah, intended to but, uh, yeah but... to live in. Yeah. Okay. Move so back to Trinity Trees. So by the the mid thirties, people started talking about this unconventional way of him being paid because you don't generally say to people actually don't pay me for that service just pay me when you die that's not generally how businesses work is it which could be in 20 years time or something yeah absolutely yeah um in 1935 he inherited seven thousand three hundred and eighty five pounds which is about four hundred and thirty thousand pounds in today's money so quite a lot of money like half a million pounds from a Matilda Witten, and it was nearly three quarters of her whole estate. Now, he'd befriended Matilda, and he'd shared his cars and chauffeurs with her, and they'd become friends, and she'd bought him another new car. But she lived in a hotel. I don't know why, but she lived in a hotel. And the staff would say that they were concerned about her state after he'd left her. She's always a bit kind of upside down um and the will was contested by her family in court but it was upheld so he inherited this huge chunk of money from her he started to recommend to patients that they should leave money to charity but instead of leaving it to the actual charities because they could be untrustworthy they should leave the money to him so that he could make sure that it was appropriately distributed to to good causes in 1939 he started looking after an uh, an agnes pike and he would inject her with morphine, which caused her health to deteriorate to the point where she didn't know who she was. She didn't know how old she was. She didn't know who her family were. And her family were obviously very concerned. So they called in another doctor for a second opinion on what was going on with with her. And the doctor who came said, well, I have no idea why she's been injected with all this morphine because she definitely doesn't need it. And so they took her out of Dr. Adam's care. And within eight weeks, she'd made a complete recovery. Wow. And she was well enough to start going out and about shopping on her own. So that was uh, another thing that kind of just put a bit of a question mark over his name. So he didn't mm. go to war. He stayed in Eastbourne. Um, and at this time, some of the doctors went off to war. And there was generally an agreement made, and I think this happened everywhere, that um, patients would kind of be redistributed to other doctors locally until the doctors who'd gone to war came back, but that the doctors who'd gone to war, that their family would get a bit of cut of the money that they were getting paid. So he was was born in 1890? 99. So he was pretty much 40 when the Second World War broke out. Yeah. So the group of doctors that went off to war all agreed that they didn't want to pass any of their patients to John Bodkin Adams. So they made sure that none of their patients went to him, which again, uh, maybe another red flag that other doctors didn't Mm. trust him. Um, And they actually described him as 
unctuous and smarmy. Quote. Smarmy. Um, so, yeah, not a, um, not a great guy. In 1941, he gained a diploma in anaesthetics and he started working in the hospital one day okay. a week. Um, but he acquired a reputation there as well of being a bit of a bungler. So, you know, he wasn't very good at university. Mm-hmm. He wasn't very good in his first job. Other doctors didn't really like him. <laughs> they didn't like him at the hospital. Apparently, he'd fall asleep whilst uh, during operations and while he was like looking after patients in operations. Um, he always seemed to be eating cakes. He spent a lot of time like eating cakes, especially in operations. Um, and quite often he'd mix up the... Cakes anas- during operations. Yeah, just, you just smash this guy just sit there eating cakes. Um, I mean, we um, all like cake, but <laughs> yeah. when you're looking after someone's... There's a uh, line, isn't there? Like uh, Anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even eat cakes while I, while we're doing the podcast, so I don't think you should probably be doing cakes looking after. <laughs> yeah. um, but apparently, quite often he'd mix up the tubes and the anaesthetic gas lines, meaning that patients would either wake up halfway through operations, oh um, or they'd turn blue. He just wasn't a very good doctor. I think is the uh, is the thing yeah. here. And despite the fact that you know professionally and in doctor circles, he was known as being rubbish. Um, he was on paper a very successful doctor um, and it was claimed by some people at one point that he was the wealthiest doctor in England and um, probably from all the money that he was being given in people's wealth. And he also attended to MPs, Olympians, Eastbourne's chief constable, loads and loads of business businessmen and even the Duke of Devonshire. So there was really high profile people who were using him as their doctor. Okay. In 1950, so a few years later, um, he was looking after a patient called Edith Morell, who was a wealthy old widow, and she'd had a stroke. So she had private nurses with her at all times to look mm-hmm. after her. And he was brought in as her doctor. And he would go and tend to her at home, um, but he insisted that the nurses left the room whenever he was looking after her. She suffered with insomnia, with discomfort, and with cerebral irritation. And he was very happy to help her with these issues with drugs, including morphine, heroin, peraldehyde, and something else, which was a combination of morphine, um, an opium antispasmotic, and codeine. Okay. So that's pretty intense as drugs go. Um, yeah. So she was well known for regularly changing her will. So she uh, would put one thing in there and then a couple of days later think, oh, no, I'll do something else. Um, So it's probably quite fair to say that John Bodkin Adams probably had no idea what he was going to be left in her will because she changed it around so much. But at points she had left him quite substantial chunks of cash and also her old Rolls Royce, um, which she later changed to her son having it. Ah. So unsurprisingly, she died and he certified that she died of a stroke and he slit her wrist to make sure that she was actually dead. I don't understand why he did that, but he did. He Um, slit her wrist. Yeah. He signed the death certificate and the cremation form saying that he had no financial interest in the case, which made sure that there would be no post-mortem and that she could just go ahead and be cremated. Actually, she left him a chest of silver, which was worth... 276 pounds which is about 
£10,000 today. Wow. Um, and the son said that actually he could have the Rolls Royce being such a good doctor. It was 19 years old anyway. Um, <laughs> so after she died, Dr. Adams billed the estate for 1,100 visits. And bearing what? in mind, 1,100 like, visits. Yeah, um, bearing in mind the amount of times that, he, um, for the amount of length of time, that's like two or three visits a day that he was kind of billing for. And that cost £1,674 in total, which is about £60,000 in today's money that he just billed their estate. So. Things changed a little bit for John Bodkin Adams on the 23rd of July, 1956, when the police received a call from somebody saying that they were a bit concerned about the manner of their friend's death. Okay. Um, Gertrude Hullett had died very unexpectedly whilst being treated by Adams, and it was her friend, Leslie Henson, who was a musical performer, who'd called the police to say that she was concerned. So Gertrude had been suffering from depression since the death of both of her husbands. So one had died six years previously of um, a heart attack and one had died just four months ago um, after suffering from bowel cancer and then a heart attack as well. And John Adams had kind of been their family doctor and I don't think he'd helped her husband off his mortal course, so to speak, but I don't think he potentially helped him to stay alive. Um, Okay. So... Neglected him. Yeah, a little okay. bit, um, which I think had kind of exacerbated things. So obviously she was very sad because both of her husbands had died. So he prescribed her sodium barbitone and also phenobarbitone. Obviously barbiturates, a common yep. sleeping aid and very common around this time and responsible for the deaths of Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe. Or was it? <laughs> <laughs> if you read yeah, into like... those conspiracy theories. <laughs> As recreational drugs or prescri- prescription drug uh, abuse yes. type things. Yeah. On the 17th of July, 1956, Gertrude wrote John a cheque for £1,000 to pay for another car that her husband had promised to buy him. Um, okay. So £1,000, that's probably like about £40,000, so you could buy quite a good car for that. He paid this into his account on the 18th of July, and he, and they said, okay, it will take a few days to clear, but he made a special request for it to be cleared by the next day, which was the 19th. On the 19th, Gertrude is thought to have taken an overdose and was found the next morning in a coma. Another doctor attended the scene um, and John didn't mention the fact that she'd been taking all of these barbiturates and they decided that it must have been a cerebral hemorrhage, um, which is most likely she was rushed to hospital. And when she got there, John kind of casually mentioned that maybe it was something to do with barbiturate poisoning because he had an idea that she might have been taking it. What should... What should they give? And they, he, they said, oh, she should have this dosage of stuff. And he said, okay. The next day, he gave a tenth of the dosage to her. Um, but surprisingly, it didn't do very much and she didn't really get any better. So John Adams called the coroner to book in the post-mortem. And the coroner said, well, um, when did the patient die? And he said, oh, well, she hasn't actually died yet, but best to get you put in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think, hang on a yeah. second, he's ringing the coroner. But she's only Before just she died, yeah, she's not dead nice. yet. So okay. he's, he's already put the post-mortem. 
Um, but she did actually develop bronchopneumonia because she was kind of in this coma and she couldn't move and do anything. Right. This is quite common. And she died at 7.23 a.m. on the 23rd of July. And a urine sample that was taken on the 21st came back on the 24th, so just after she died. Um, and it showed that she had twice the fatal dose of sodium barbitone in her body. Wow. So I don't think it was a cerebral uh, hemorrhage. Quite confident it was a, <laughs> a sodium barbitone overdose. Yep. Coincidentally, she also left John Adams her Rolls-Royce. So that I think that that could be Rolls-Royce number three. There's a lot of Rolls-Royces. There were so many Rolls-Royces in Eastbourne. (laughs) Um, And that was actually written into her will just five days before she took her overdose. No way. And that cheque for £1,000 also just kind of disappeared. So on the day that she died, the Eastbourne coroner notified the local chief constable that from the post-mortem, the death didn't quite appear to be natural. Um, they obviously couldn't find any sort of evidence of a cerebral hemorrhage. They started taking statements from people that she'd been with. Um, and lots of those people actually thought that she'd committed suicide due to her depression over the death of her husband. Yeah. Um, husbands, And that she'd kind of written bits and pieces to say that she was a bit suicidal. And they thought that that kind of added together. They had a second post-mortem done by a home office pathologist who concluded that her death was caused by by barbiturate poisoning Um, and an inquest was held and they basically had to decide whether it was an accidental death or suicide and they came back and decided that it was suicide, that she had committed suicide on this thing. They never considered homicide. I don't think they could. There wasn't enough evidence for it. Right, okay. So after the evidence, reporters who'd been covering this case just really started digging into the history of John Adams and thinking, Mm -hmm. who is this guy? Who's this doctor? Um, And they found out about kind of the will disputes that had happened earlier on where he'd been written into um, that lady's will, Matilda Witten's will, and got hundreds of thousands of like half a million pounds from her um, and the fact that the family had disputed that and they found started finding about these bequests and things around prescriptions that were a little bit dodgy and so they kind of flagged this up with Scotland Yard and they said we think that you maybe need to look into this guy um, because there's something not right about him and they started to build up a list of elderly widows who'd been in his care from the beginning of the 30s who'd included him in their wills. And in total, he was a beneficiary in 132 wills. Mm. So it's quite a lot of wills. The officer who'd been put in charge of the case, um, Officer Hannum, had recently solved the Teddington Towpath murders in 1953, which I don't know a lot about. Could be mm. another thing for us to look it at. It could be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but there was some controversy about it because the person who was um, caught for it and eventually hung, I think, there wasn't really very much evidence linking him to the case, but the, the police were keen to kind of just get it written off. But he was he was put onto this case and it was up to him to work out whether he had done something wrong or whether he'd just been quite unlucky with the fact that he'd been such a lovely doctor and he'd made friends with all these old ladies and they decided to leave him some will to some money to their friendly doctor and they died. Um mm. what was it? So they started to focus on cases from 46 to 56 um, and from the 310 death certificates that he'd signed in this time 
over half of them were considered by the Home Office pathologists to need further investigation. So about 42% of all the death certificates he'd signed said that the death was from a cerebral hemorrhage, um, okay. the cause of death that he'd given to this other lady, which is actually quite uncommon in elderly bedridden patients. And at this time, about 15% of these people were dying of it. So it was much higher than the national average for mm-hmm. elderly people dying of it. Um, and then 163 of the certificates said that they died whilst they were in a coma. And Mm. that would have also been suggestive of narcotics or barbiturates being used. Um, And because he was signing death certificates and saying, yep, it's all fine. They can be cremated or they can be buried. Off you go. And no one was looking at it or thinking about it. He'd kind of got away with it until this had been picked up. The police interviewed nurses that he'd worked with who said that he didn't like them to be in the room with him as he administered his treatments to these old people. I Um, bet he didn't. (laughs) And that he would try to kind of distance people from their families and separate them, which is quite common in these sort of cases, I think, that people try and make out that their families are against them and that sort of thing. But they didn't really have any solid evidence Mm. to pin on him. Just a lot of kind of hearsay and a lot of suspicions, but nothing really solid. In October 1956, Hannah met with Adams and Adam said, Adam said to Hannah, you're finding all of these rumours untrue, aren't you? Because he was very adamant that he wasn't committing these things. And then Hannah <laughs> mentioned some prescriptions that Adams had forged that they'd found evidence of. And he said, oh, well, yeah. that was that was very wrong. I have God's forgiveness for it. He was still very much a, a practicing Christian. And then he said... Then, he declared he got God's forgiveness for it. Yeah, for, it. Writing, okay. for forging prescriptions, basically. Nothing else. I'll have to try um, that one. Yeah, yeah. And then Hannah <laughs> brought up the deaths of his patients and the money that he'd got from them. And he then he said, well, a lot of those were instead of fees. I don't want money. And, you know, what use is it? I sp- I, I paid a lot of tax last year. Um, and then when he said the fact that um, Mr. Hullett, Gertrude's husband, had left him some money that had been cashed in, he said, well, he was a lifelong friend. And even though I thought it would have been more than that, basically. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And when they said to him, like, well, why have you written on the cremation forms that you weren't going to get any money from these people, which wasn't true? He said, oh, that wasn't done wickedly. God knows it wasn't. We always want cremations to go off smoothly for the dear relatives. If I said I knew I was getting money under the will, they might get suspicious. And I like cremations and burials to go smoothly. There was nothing suspicious, really. It was not deceitful. Hmm. So you can make of that what you will. (laughs) So they were desperate to pin something on him. And I think there is an an element of, was this guy who had solved this towpath murders, maybe a bit questionably, was he just dead set on trying to capture this doctor? Right. That's the kind of question mark around this. Yeah. So after searching his property and asking if he had any drugs in the house that he shouldn't, he said, no, there's nothing here. And he was trying to kind of like put bottles in his coat and things like that. (laughs) They did find stuff there that shouldn't be there, like lots of bottles of morphine that were written for patients that had died recently and things like that. So they arrested him finally on 13 charges, including false representation on cremation certificates. That's basically all they could get him on at this point. Um, And he was granted bail. And then he was arrested again on the 19th of December 1956 and charged with the murder of Edith Morrill. So that older lady who kept changing her will. And 
he said murder murder can you prove it was murder i didn't think you could prove it was murder she was dying in any event so um they thought they had enough evidence to kind of pin at least four things on him but they only needed to try him on one so they went with the edith morrell case because they thought that they that she didn't need the medications that she Mm -hmm. was being given that she was prescribing so they thought they had a really good kind of case there um, so his trial started in March 1957, and on the 9th of April 1957, so only after a couple of weeks, the jury returned a verdict after 44 minutes that he was not guilty. 44 minutes. Wow. Okay. Defence's case had really rested on the fact that he was trying to help all of these poor old ladies die, basically, in a, because they were so poorly. The closing statement from the defence said, trying to ease the last hours of the dying is a doctor's duty, and it had been twisted and turned into an accusation for murder. There were all sorts of mess-ups in the trial that just basically caused serious doubts for the jury. Um, There was something to do with the nurses who were looking after her were keeping notes. Yeah. And then they were saying, oh, no, she was in a coma. And they were saying, well, your notes said that she had this three-course meal. Which was it? And them saying that the notes had different information into what they were all saying. And it just kind of planted that seed of doubt, which is basically what happened in the OJ Simpson trial, isn't it? So basically they couldn't convict him because they didn't think that there was enough evidence Um, and they couldn't bring him to trial on anything else because there wasn't enough evidence. Right. Okay. So he was never convicted. So in the aftermath of the trial, he resigned from the NHS um, and he was actually convicted in Lewis Crown Court in 1957 on eight counts of forging prescriptions, four counts of making false statements on cremation forms and three offences under the Dangerous Drugs Act. Um, And he was fined £2,400 plus costs of 457 pounds his license to prescribe dangerous drugs was revoked um and on the 27th of november he was struck off the medical register by the gmc but he did continue to see some of his more loyal patients (laughs) and prescribed over-the-counter medicine to them and he continued practicing medicine despite the fact that most people thought he was a murderer okay and he was actually reinstated as a gp on the 22nd of november 1961 the day after you were born. Yeah, uh, after, <laughs> after, sorry, I just gave you a rage to everybody. Um, after two failed applications and his authority to prescribe dangerous drugs was restored the following July. So that's only kind of four years out of the game and then he was back to being a GP again. Wow. He continued to practice as a sole practitioner. And in 1962, he actually applied to move to America, but was refused because of his dangerous drug convictions. Right. Um, He later became president and honorary medical officer of the British Clay Pigeon Shooting Association. Okay. (laughs) He just carried on living his life. He retired not long after that because, you know, he was in his 60s. Yeah. Um, And then... On the 30th of June, 1983, so he was 84 at this Mm -hmm. point, um, he slipped and he fractured his hip whilst he was on a shooting day out in battle in East Sussex. He was taken to Eastbourne Hospital, but he developed a chest infection and he died on the 4th of July of left ventricular failure. In 1983. Okay. So Granny and Grandad moved to battle in May 1983. Well, there you go. He'd have been there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> so 
they and but if he'd have been their doctor, that would have been another famous doctor they'd have had because the yes. doctor <laughs> was the the dad of Tim Rice Oxley from Keen, isn't he? That's one of my biggest claims to fame. <laughs> <laughs> Tenuous, but yeah, I know, but <laughs> this is as good as I've got. He left an estate of £402,970, which is about £1.4 million in today's money. It's quite a big estate. Um, And um, he'd been receiving legacies from his patients right up until the end. So he'd still been inheriting money off patients who died right until the end. Are these the bills that they owed him from the 1920s and 30s? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and... His trial had quite a lot of long-lasting effects on the English legal system. So um, the first was establishing the principle of double effect, that if a doctor gave, and this is in quotes, gave treatment to a seriously ill patient with the aim of relieving pain or distress, and as a result of which that person's life was inadvertently shortened, the doctor was not guilty of murder. So that was something that was kind of brought into law because of this which I think is quite interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's a really tricky <laughs> one, isn't it? Going on from that conversation that we had last week. About... Well, yeah. I mean, that was a bit more blatant, wasn't it, when they were drowning the patients? Yeah. <laughs> but the the concept of putting someone out of their, out of their pain and suffering at the end. Oh, gosh. It's, yeah. Surely it's all around intent. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the idea of that Hippocratic Oath, that they'll only do good. Um, so if, to preserve life, yeah. Yeah. Wow, the, okay, the, well, that's, it. so that's called the what? The law? The principle of double effect. Okay. It seems like a really weird name for it, because that's nothing to do with what it does. But, um, yeah, so um, the case also led to changes in the dangerous drugs regulations, meaning that Schedule 4 poisons needed a signed and dated record of patient details and the total dose that had been used. Um, but uh, before, you only needed to see that the drugs had been given to them. You didn't need okay. to know kind of what how much there was and right. when they take it yep. and stuff like that. Um, so that changed. And after working in a hospice, I know how uh, stringent people have yeah. to be on that sort of record keeping now. <laughs> So, yeah, that is the case of John Bodkin. It's amazing, really. There's something definitely, definitely dodgy. Yeah. There. Yeah. And, I and think, he got away uh, with it. Yeah. And potentially, allegedly, maybe. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Because, like, I mean, it's not dissimilar to Harold Shipman. Well, I was, really, yeah. in a lot of ways. And I think he's kind of seen as the precursor to that. And, yeah. Um, I'm surprised that we'd never heard of him because Howard Shipman is so well known. I know. Actually, yeah, yeah. They really know about this guy. And there's so much more in that I could have talked about around okay. kind of other cases and things like that. And there was something to do with all the records were locked and they were supposed to stay locked and they opened them up again for some sort of reason. That's the only reason that we know so much about it now. And it was only relatively recently that that happened. It was kind of like kept shut away and I don't know why. It wasn't Howard Shipman more, he was forging wheels though, wasn't he? Or he was in some cases. I think in some cases. I think in a lot of cases he was being... Wasn't it only when he started getting put into wills that's what got him caught? Because he'd been killing people for a long time without any sort of financial interest. And it was as soon as he started getting money off it that people started to look at it. Because wasn't the lady that he got caught over, wasn't the fact that the family saw the will and thought this looks really dodgy. She wasn't that poorly. The doctor's been put into the will. 
he found her dead. He certified mm. her as dead. I think that's what kind of got him caught when he started to get greedy. Otherwise, he could have got away with it for, yeah. forever because similar, these people were dying. He was signing their death certificates. They, weren't, they were old people. They weren't really questioning it. That was it. Job done. But it was. I think it was only when he started to kind of take money from people yep. that he got picked up on it. But this guy was just taking money right from the beginning. <laughs> really was, yeah. Wow. He uh, he certainly played the system, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the stacks out there about him. Um, okay. Not very many podcasts, actually, about him, which is my general point, my first point of research, is generally another podcast. So uh, <laughs> not that many podcasts about him. <laughs> but there was a film that, was, that they made about him with Timothy West playing. Okay. John Bogdan Adams, so you could have a look at that if you're interested. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. No worries. Well, if uh, anyone wants to listen to any of our other podcasts, they are available on most podcast platforms. Yeah. Google, TuneIn, Spotify. If you are looking for something to drift off to sleep to, you can pop one of our uh, bedtime stories on. They're kind of five, six minutes worth of just one of us chatting away to, for you to, to lull you to sleep. <laughs> and if you want to email us, you can at dadanddaughterdodeath at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at at dadanddaughterdodeath. And on Facebook at dadanddaughterdodeath. Where you'll find some more information about the stories that we're uh, telling you about on our podcasts and some pictures as well. Yep, we'll share some pictures. Um, anything I find that makes me laugh that yep. I feel I need to share on there, that tends to go on there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you've got anything you want to ask us about or any suggestions for future podcasts or any comments, really be good to hear from you. Definitely. And if you are enjoying listening to us, we'd really appreciate um, a review or some stars on iTunes, especially if you're listening on there. That would be great if you're if you're enjoying listening to us and you've got this far through this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, Thank you all very much for, for continuing to listen to us. So join us next time. We're once again, dad and daughter do death.